periodically, um, as many of you are already part of the Gita Wisdom discussion group and uh, social club, um, <laughs> you're aware that we do these sorts of gatherings and special events from time to time. Last week we had a wonderful tour of the High Line, and that was uh, a lot of fun. Tour and um, vegan lunch at uh, Blossom. Um, we're going to be starting up uh, the New York Gita Wisdom Group again uh, in the at the end of January at 26 Second Avenue. And uh, we have all kinds of fun stuff lined up for the new year. The theme of the year will be Bhakti in the City. Oh. So we're going to be doing special events, uh, maybe some lectures at places like the 92nd Street Y, um, museum visits, maybe some theater if we find the right kind of a show that we'd all like to see. And of course, uh, Kirtan Prashadam and special guests like this evening. Um, we've had some pretty wonderful people here. We've had a good string of guest speakers here in our home. And this evening um, is a particularly good stroke of luck. Uh, Krishna Chatra Maharaj has, uh, since uh, 1970, is it, when you took sannyas? What, what year was that? Took sannyas. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? What, what year were you initiated? That was initiated, 1972. Initiated, 72. Okay, yeah. 72. Uh, 2014 was uh, yeah. sannyas. Okay. And this is an interesting phenomenon. And up until uh, as recently as about 1960-something, there were no Western world sannyasi, Vaishnav, gurus. I draw your attention to um, this book by Andrew Rawlinson called The Book of Enlightened Masters, Western Teachers in Eastern Traditions. This dates back. This is about 30 years old already. But it does uh, underscore how unusual it is that only recently we've had this phenomenon of people growing up in non-Hindu, non-Asian traditions, becoming masters of those traditions. And um, it speaks, of course, to the universality of the teachings, and that's going to be our subject uh, this evening. Um, Kenneth Valpe, uh, Krishna Chetra Swami, is a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, college in Oxford University. He's also Dean of Studies at Bhaktivedanta College in Belgium. His doctoral dissertation was on Murti Seva, which is the uh, worship of the deity forms uh, that you see on altars in Krishna temples. That was published by Rutledge. He's co-editor of this book, the Bhagavat Purana, Sacred Text on Living Tradition, which I recommend to you if you wish further background on the topics that we'll be discussing this evening. I'm also particularly enamored of this particular book, which was not published by an academic press, uh, in praise of my preceptor. These are memories of um, Krishna Chetra's spiritual master, uh, Srila Prabhupada, who is also my teacher. So you're welcome to look at these books uh, later on. Um, the subject this evening, how many of you saw the article, how many received the article that uh, Krishna Chetraswami wrote? Okay, well, I urge you to 
peruse that. Um, there are some important points that speak to really the foundation of what is spiritual life. How do we know that there is some other dimension to reality separate from what we can calculate and plot and track and register with material instruments of observation analysis? How do we know that there's anything else? There's no particular school of study that gives you a degree in consciousness or the soul. Or, um, so how do we know? Um, in the Puranic text Srimad Bhagavatam, one of the ancient histories and one of the most revered texts of devotional culture, bhakti culture, we come across a rather interesting phenomenon of the world we can see and another world that we cannot see with our unqualified eyes. That's going to be our subject of discussion this evening. Would you please join me in welcoming Krishna Chetra Swami to our Gita Gathering group? Thank you. So you're welcome you. to uh, say something if you have some opening <laughs> remarks. You're welcome to start with that. And then I've got some okay. impertinent questions I'm going to ask you. That's what I'm worried about. Okay. <laughs> well, first, I want to thank you, uh, Yogeshwar Prabhu, as I know you, Joshua, otherwise, for kindly uh, welcoming me into this wonderful circle. Uh, I feel very privileged indeed. Uh, and I hope... I can say something uh, that will get the juices going, if nothing else, that we can reflect on this subject. Uh, I would have a thought that I could share, I think makes a nice starting point, uh, which is not my thought. It's, it's from Houston Smith, the late Houston Smith, whom I met uh, in 1998, I think, in Berkeley. Uh, very, he was a very, he became very well-known uh, scholar of religion. His, his first book, I think, became hugely popular about world religions. You know Houston Smith. So one of his last books uh, was called Why Religion Matters. And he's speaking about religion in the most general of terms. And he, I think he's responding to what's come to be known as the new atheism, essentially. And he gives an interesting image uh, in this book of uh, what he calls tunnel vision. He says, we are all, all of us uh, in modern culture suffering essentially from tunnel vision. And then he goes on to elaborate that this tunnel has four sides. Uh, the ground of this tunnel, he, uh, he says, is scientism. He distinguishes between science and scientism. Scientism is a metaphysical claim that there is no reality beyond what we can perceive with our senses and that there is no knowledge worth knowing 
um, beyond what is potentially knowable uh, through scientific methods and, uh, and the use of, of rationality. So that, that um, understanding it has come to be called scientism. Then one, one of two walls to this tunnel uh, is education. Modern uh, education is, uh, for the most part, uh, secular education is, is to a large extent explicitly or implicitly supporting or uh, backing up uh, this approach of scientism. And then to add to the trouble is the roof of this tunnel, uh, which is the media. And what the media does, although media pays attention to religion, uh, it only pays attention to what is sensational and what is um, other. In other words, it's always emphasizing otherness of religion and other other religions uh, and uh, the media tends to also be uh, thereby trivializing religion and then finally on on the the, the last side of this tunnel uh, he accuses the legal system says the legal system, although he's even speaking about America, that where we may want to defend the legal system as, you know, separation of church and state and so on, but he seems to be arguing there that the end effect of the legal system is also uh, to trivialize religion or to ignore religion or in some way to dampen uh, the the religious impulse. And so using this idea of tunnel vision, what he's saying is uh, where, where there would be no tunnel vision, if we use this analogy, there would be a greater, there would be a broad vision, there would be a perception of a reality uh, which is now being covered by these... Uh, these uh, very powerful influences in our society. So uh, the, the contrast between, the, between the, the tunnel vision and the, uh, the, vi- the potential for a higher uh, spiritual vision is what he's highlighting there. And he's identifying then what it is that is keeping our vision from being that. So also implied is that our, our sort of, I'm hesitating to use the word, but natural vision, our potential for a full vision as human beings, uh, goes far beyond what we actually experience. And so within our tunnel vision, we're then wrestling with you know, the idea, oh, there might be something beyond this tunnel, no, 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 there's nothing beyond the tunnel. <laughs> uh, this, uh, this, this t- kind of mentality is, 
tends to be there. Anyway, that's Houston Smith. Uh, and going to the other side, within our, mm, our meaning, I'm speaking now of the Indian or Indic uh, tradition, very broadly speaking, and we think about um, experience and we think about perception and so on, I think it's helpful to look at uh, the yoga tradition in which we understand uh, the process of um, refining one's attention. I think a, a nice way to understand what is yoga is it's about uh, sharpening our attention in a way which goes beyond uh, the ordinary understanding of, of uh, the power of attention. Uh, and so we get in the classic text of yoga, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, uh, as many of you may know, the famous uh, sutra number two, Yoga's Chitta Vritti Nirodha, uh, that kind of definition of yoga is uh, it is a process of nirodha, of winding up, of, of, re of retracting a tendency uh, to, um, for, for the citta, for the consciousness, to um, be disturbed, to be distracted. Vritti literally means turnings, uh, the turnings of the consciousness. Uh, we are constantly turning and churning, and uh, and so we tend to be distracted in our ordinary, uh, everyday lives, um, more or less, depending what we're doing at particular times. Uh, but the the aim of yoga is to really go to a much higher level of concentration that we are ordinarily aware of. And because I suspect you're going to ask me something about this cosmology of the Bhagavatam, I'm going to uh, jump ahead to make, uh, to mention in relation to the yoga system what I've always found a fascinating point from uh, the main commentary to the Yoga Sutra uh, in the third chapter, where there's a series of um, what are called samyama. These are practices of focusing attention on specific objects with explanation of what the re result will be of perfecting that particular focus. The sort of common joke about this is meditating on one's navel, you know, this idea of meditate. Well, yes, you can meditate on your navel. Um, and there are many, there's several objects described and what results of meditating on them can be. As a practice of focusing attention, one of these items mentioned is a meditation on the spinal column, uh, which is identified uh, in a sort of tantric sense of microcosm, macrocosm, with uh, the Milky Way. 
which is called the Sushumna, right? So this, this is called the Sushumna column, and then this uh, Milky Way is also Sushumna. Now here's what I found interesting, that Vyasa, the traditional commentator on um, the Yoga Sutras, this is understood to be a different Vyasa uh, identified with the Mahabharata and so on, says that if you perfect this meditation, here the key word is if, <laughs> if you perfect this meditation, you will then understand the structure of the universe. You will then comprehend the structure of the universe, uh, which suggests that a process of analysis and all the efforts that we might put into understanding the, the mysteries uh, of what is described in, uh, say, the fifth canto of the Bhagavatam, uh, may never really come to a clear crystal crystal clear understanding for us until we get this yoga, what is sometimes called yoga pratyaksha. Pratyaksha means uh, direct perception. Aksha refers to the eyes and prati means uh, opposite to. So something opposite to the eyes means you're directly perceiving. So the uh, then the broader general sense of pratyaksha is sense perception, whether it be from sight or from uh, any of the other senses. But this is called yoga pratyaksha. It's like a different class of perception. It's like a step above uh, whatever we are experiencing in this world. So uh, we have our yoga uh, yoga pratyaksha on one side, we have our tunnel vision down here, so to say. Uh, and yeah, we might ask, so what's in between the two? What, what do we do with ourselves? Uh, becoming aware of the tunnel vision and, and wanting to get out of that. And I would say uh, the, uh, the thrust, once, one way of appreciating the Bhagavata Purana, the thrust of it is just that. It's giving a process uh, for getting out of that tunnel, uh, which emphasizes this, the sense of hearing. Now, this idea of hearing is difficult, difficult for us to grasp because we are so much uh, ensconced in a visual culture. And this goes back to Plato. Already Plato was, was worried that what is going to become of us that we are writing things down. It's a little ironic because he himself was writing things down. Uh, but he was worried about it because uh, his concern was as soon as you write something, it becomes fixed, and then it may be understood wrongly <laughs> from what the original writer intends. And then who knows who is going to read that which uh, someone is going to write. And they, may, they might come 2,500 years later and 
I don't think he put it this way, but God knows what they're going to understand from what I write. Um, the Vedic tradition, as it's called, um, the, the early texts of which the Bhagavata Purana is, refers to itself as the ripened fruit. Uh, Nigama, this word in the beginning of that second verse, third verse of the Bhagavatam, uh, literally means uh, that which goes down, downward. Ni, down, gama, going. And what is going down are roots. And what are the roots? The roots are of the tree of Veda, Vedic knowledge. And then uh, the, the Bhagavatam is saying, Kalpatara uh, Galitam Palam, the ripened fruit of that Veda tree is this book, uh, is the Bhagavatam. And then fast forward, you get to the end of uh, the first book of the 12 books of the Bhagavatam, where the, the big meeting happens. The Bhagavatam, in a sense, commences at the end of the first book uh, when the king, who has been cursed to die in seven days, someone asked me two days ago, why seven days? Uh, I thought of the reason. If there's time later, we can explain. I've been losing sleep over this. Why seven days? Um, so then he, he said, okay, I've got seven days to live, seven days and nights. Uh, what am I going to do with that time? And he approaches uh, the sages. Eventually, Shuka comes. Everyone, realize, everyone immediately understands, here's our man. He knows how to answer this problem. And then Parikshit, the king, asks him this famous question, what is the duty of a person who is about to die? A way of taking that is to see what is the duty of a person who's coming to the threshold of this limitation uh, which, I'm, which I've been carrying with me throughout this life in the form of this body. Uh, what is my duty? What am I to do? Uh, and of course, that's a question of ethics also. What is to be done? What shall I do? That's kind of the, the first question of ethics. And then Shuka answers, and what does he answer? He says, hear, hear about uh, param satyam, hear about the Supreme, and hear and meditate on and speak about uh, the Supreme Person. And then we, we enter into this, it, it throws aside, in effect, the tunnel and says, there is a person. And that person is like us in some respects, and yet he is so much more than us. And so it's the story, because the Bhagavata is a narrative or a series of narratives, which uh, is really taking us out. The way it takes us out of the tunnel is takes us out of time, in effect. It, it takes us out of the limitations of past, present, and future. Sometimes as we read, we want to say, wait a minute, wait, wait. what happened first, and then what happened after that, and what happened? I, I need history. 
<laughs> I want to know. And um, indeed, um, the word itihasa is sometimes translated as, as history. Literally, itihasa means itihasa. Uh, iti means thus, and ha means indeed, and asa means happened. Thus indeed it happened. And that's sometimes translated as history. But one scholar, now I'm meandering a bit, but you can stop me anytime. One scholar did a study of the use. This is what Indologists do. He took this one word, itihasa, and he studied, he searched all the uses of this word in the Mahabharata. Mahabharata is one of the hugest texts in the, in the, on the planet uh, with 100,000 uh, double verses. Um, it's not the longest. Did you know that? I did not know that. Some, there's an epic from Tibet which is longer. Anyway, he took all these instances of Itihasa and he shows that uh, they have something in common and that is they're always used in the context of an illustration of a point. Whoever is speaking is making some, some arguments, some philosophical or theological point, and then he may give an illustration with a story. That's itihasa. So whether we want to say, therefore, it's uh, history in the modern sense of how we understand history uh, or something else, it's, it's actually a bit open. The Bhagavatam, in any case, is narrative, and narrative means there's a progression of, of activity. And I would say it is drawing us from the level, the limited level of karma of action, which brings reaction and brings more action and more reaction. And it kind of kicks us out of that mode onto the level of Leela. And Leela is, uh, it is activity which is not limited in the way that karma is limited. It's activity which is uh, connected with Brahman, and the word it's confirmed. The word Brahman comes once again. It's really confirmed now. <laughs> the, um, the word Brahman comes from the Sanskrit verbal root bring. B-R with a dot, N with a dot, H. And this means to expand. So it's all about what we used to want to do back in the 60s. <laughs> Consciousness expansion, remember that? Anyway, uh, <laughs> some of us go back that far. <laughs> so... Uh, and the Bhagavatam is doing this through series of narratives and also 
as one grand narrative which doesn't have an end because when you get to the end of the Bhagavatam, what do you do? You go back. You go back to the beginning and do it again. It's a cyclical work in that sense. So linear time, which we're accustomed to, in which we have our ordinary pratyaksha and our ordinary reasoning processes, uh, is is decentered, uh, and we are put onto a kind of uh, circular underst- or, or cyclical understanding of time, which then is meant to eventually fling us out beyond time. Does that make any sense? Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Uh, you I, I think you've given us an entire thesis oh, worth of material. Know. Okay. The, um, if I may, just to kind of... Should we get a little to, air in here? Is it... Uh, we can certainly yeah, do that. Yes? Yes? Okay. You can... Uh, just open the door a little bit and let's let some air circulate. If I can try to summarize briefly, please. Um, you you took us starting with a quote from Houston Smith, uh, perhaps alerting us to the fact that we tend to live in a quantifiable framework where we are constricted in this tunnel by our tendency towards scientism and uh, the limitations of, <laughs> of what we can know and the media suppressing the notion there might, that there might be something more than that. Hmm. To which you might add also, I suppose, the, um, the knowledge filters of the academy and the hmm. uh, need for tenure. And uh, if, you, if you don't tote the party line, you're basically going to be ostracized, you'll be branded a heretic, and you won't get funded and all that stuff. So from there, we move to um, a, a reference that you gave us from the Yoga Sutra, um, describing that the journey, the spiritual journey, is to move out of those constrictions uh, by achieving prachaksha, or direct perception. Yoga prachaksha. Yoga prachaksha, of a higher reality. Mm-hmm. And then you brought us into... The, Shima, the world of the Srimad Bhagavatam, the Bhagavat Purana, and uh, how it is a elevating of the spiritual seeker from um, the world of material action and reaction, the karmic world, to the world of Leela. Hmm. And along the way, expanding consciousness out of linear time to cyclical time and a perception of the ultimate reality in the form of the Supreme Person. That's not bad. All of that in 23 minutes is pretty good. Um, let me, let me uh, jump, jump to the bottom line here. Uh, a big part of what we do in our uh, Gita Wisdom gatherings is precisely what you've directed us toward, which is how do we know what we know? And why are we so afraid to stretch those parameters? Hmm. Um, and that's my first question for you. Given what you've just described, which is essentially, it's almost like Plato's cave. You know, we're, we're in the yeah. shadows here. Yeah. There's this greater light, this greater reality out there. The <laughs> Out there. 
Um, and yet we seem terrified uh, of, uh, of addressing it. Why is it that intelligent, thoughtful, educated, um, sincere, truly sincere people, I'm not talking about scientism yeah. fanatics now who just right. will insist out of ego that we have all knowledge, we know everything, yeah. you religious people just go away. Yeah. Why is it that there's such hesitation on the part of um, rational thinking, we might almost say enlightened minds, to enter into the territory that you're describing for us? What is, where is that fear? Is it something rational? Is it something irrational? Is it just a, a reaction to the, the, the travesties of religion throughout history and, and, and never wanting to go there again? Why is there this tension? Or, or all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> uh, I would add habit to the list. Okay. Uh, habits of thought. Um, and I would also add attachment. Um, we are very much uh, attached to our identities that we have built uh, or has been built for us, of course, a combination of both things. We're, we are, uh, from day one, uh, learning about ourselves from those around us. And what we're learning is largely in relation to our physical bodies and then our minds. And we, we find many rewards by accepting uh, these parameters of identity. Soap and so and there's a, a very powerful uh, sense of perpetuation in modern language. We may say it's about keeping in our comfort zone, um, but it's from a from a yoga taking the yoga philosophy understanding. It would be uh, an identification with the what is called, the technical term is ahamkara. Uh, the, the sense of I am the doer. And it, it sort of boils down to having a sense of being in the center of my own universe. We have that tendency, each one of us, more or less, uh, and this is, of course, mitigated in various ways. We may be very conscious and concerned for others around us, no doubt. Uh, our circle of care uh, may be larger or smaller, but it tends to always, however much we may not want it to be, it tends to be with I, me, mine in the center of that. Isn't it? And that, that, that tendency uh, brings with it uh, a kind of closing of the doors. What was that book from the 60s, The Doors of Perception? Mm -hmm. It was a popular psychological book. Fritjof Capra or somebody? <coughs> Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley. Was it Aldous Huxley? Yeah. We sort of closed the doors of perception around... Uh, our 
our preconceptions, which we hold on to as our self-identity. And so that's what also the Bhagavatam is very much... Um, it's working on that through its narratives. It's kind of uh, working to loosen the, the rusty bolts of, of that tendency that we have and to shift the attention from myself as a kind of uh, monad of reality to, uh, to the supreme self, to the higher self, to Paramatma, to Bhagavan. Um, yeah, that's how I would put it in a nutshell. Okay, well, you've added those additional factors of... Um why the hesitation but let's let's get into it now i mean we're we're talking about a text a scriptural text yes that describes a fantasy realm of such implausible proportions that it stretches the bounds of credibility way beyond the breaking point you okay. read the stories of the bhagavatam and we're, we're compelled to accept that there are planets of um, snakes and worlds where the oceans are filled with nectar and milk and honey and uh, places where there are beings with many arms and legs and heads. <laughs> and um, that in, in, in the eternal realm, there are uh, creatures, uh, giant snakes, who lie in wait to do uh, evil to the cowherd children of this little village. And... Um, I, and I, I, I sympathize, I mean, deeply with people who uh, look at this world of the Bhagavat Purana mm. and say, I, re I really wish you people good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go the other way. Uh, yes. So the reason why I thought your article in the Journal of Vaishnava Studies, and we have the editor-in-chief of the journal here, Steve Rosen. The reason why I thought that article was important to circulate is that it suggests something about how we see things and how these deeper perceptions, the yoga prachaksha that you're talking about, is something to, that needs to be earned. Mm. It's not just there to take, if you wish it, as an option. Mm. And I wonder if you would uh, walk us a little bit through that. It, it seems from your article that there is no one level of reality which is reality. Mm. It seems that there are simultaneously many dimensions, some of them so outrageous that we might be better off not even considering <laughs> those regions <laughs> until we're a little more qualified. I mean, if I understood... Your article properly? Well, okay, now, truth be told, the article you're referring to, how long ago did I write it? What excuse is that? It was, I mean, some years ago. That was and a fascinating article. I mean, I don't know if those who, who was had Was I focusing on Bhaktivinoda? Yes. Okay, yeah. so I can say something about what he's trying to do there. Please. Um, but first, a little history. Uh, context of modern history. 
who was Bhaktivinoda and what was he trying to do. Uh, we're talking now, we're going back to uh, the, let's say, beginning of this, no, anyway, we're going back to 1869 uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and this is just a few years after what used to be called the Sepoy Mutiny, and uh, that was uh, 1857, 58, I think. Uh, now in India, they tend to call that the first uh, war of independence or the first rebellion or something. Uh, in other words, the British were very much a presence in India. And the educated people, especially of Bengal, were really kind of waking up and thinking deeply about who are we in relation to these people who have now become our rulers and who are bringing with them an entirely different uh, culture, a, a different worldview. Um, what is it? Mainly the European rationalist worldview. The rationalist worldview, but also the Christian worldview, a combination of the both. And these two were struggling with each other uh, in, in Europe at the same time. Um, where... Where do we fit into this, or how, or do we fit into it? And what about our own tradition, which goes back centuries, millennia? Uh, what is our understanding of that tradition? And so, in this encounter between Western, okay, we can say Western rationalism, you know, we may want to oversimplify the Western rationalism, and Asian traditionalism or something. This is starting to sound like Orientalism, <laughs> an Orientalist narrative in itself. Uh, but something kind of like this was going on. And Bhaktivinoda in particular uh, was very concerned uh, to think all of this through. And he found with this particular text a major tool for, for doing this thinking. And in the process of his thinking, he was also speaking and he was writing. And so he wrote this essay, The Bhagavata, Its Religion, Ethics, and Philosophy, in which he plays with some ideas which later on he kind of seems to back off from. But he's really trying to urge in that article his colleagues who have rejected the tradition whole, pretty much wholesale to say, wait, 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 wait. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're ignoring the gems which are there uh, in this literature. <coughs> And you're doing so because you are reading only superficially. You're reading the fantastic stories. And because you're 
only seeing what looks too fantastical to 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 process um, and because you only see that you're rejecting it therefore you're rejecting the wisdom the truth the reality the deeper reality which is uh, presented in the Bhagavatam and so that's his kind of point of departure and for this reason, he makes some what we might want to call concessions uh, to West, Western rationalism uh, that, again, later he seems to indicate that he doesn't himself uh, go along with. So, for example, the story uh, or the accounts, uh, he specifically uh, refers to the end of the fifth book, the fifth canto, which describes uh, a series of um, of naraka uh, lokas, of hellish places where terrible punishments take place, are experienced by persons who have uh, done particular evil uh, or sinful deeds. And he says, this has been included in the Bhagavata Purana, in order to uh, to frighten uh, the less educated persons to keep them in line, <laughs> to, to keep them from doing uh, bad activities, vikarma. Uh, and so he's kind of giving this, what sounds like a very Western approach, to say, well, you know, we may not be able to uh, digest what is being described there as any kind of real place where really such tortures are happening. It's anyway, don't worry about it. It's there just to scare uh, foolish people. But he says the essential idea there is still good. And what is that? That there is karma, there is action, and karma, when it is um, bad action, evil action, sinful action, will have uh, some reaction and we will suffer. So he's saying if you, if you read carefully and understand that, uh, then you can appreciate what's going on here. Don't worry about the fantasy. That's what he's saying. And also, in general, if you look at the narratives and 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 uh, and follow, let's say the the ethical dimension of the narratives, I think you'll see that uh, they are enduring and uh, worthwhile reading. It's not something you just have to say. Well, good luck to you, folks. <laughs> And and so, it's not. Um, yeah, we tend to reject or dismiss because of what we find uh, incomprehensible or bizarre. And what Bhaktivinoda was saying is, wait, wait, slow down. There's rich, valuable uh, reality, wisdom here, and you need to you need to be. Um, not so prejudiced. Try to try to get these uh, 
valuable gems of the Bhagavata. And then, then from there, uh, you may get a new perspective on that which we're now calling fantasy to see, well, a lot of what we may say uh, isn't possible just because we don't experience it may in fact be possible beyond our limited experience. Let's take it out of the realm of the fabulous stories of the Bhagavatam, which I think legitimately would challenge anybody mm. to... Um, how, how, how capable can you just kind of go along with this by um, placating your own concerns by saying, well, that's for less intelligent people. It's still being presented in this wisdom text. Let's move it to something that arguably be, may be more worth considering by a contemporary thinking audience, whether it's the eternality of the self, you know, that we come back again and again, that what is called samsara or reincarnation uh, is, is reality. Or karma, there is some effect that is generated by actions and by intent also. Sometimes it yeah. may not be a physical action. It might just be the intent that generates some uh, response to it. Right. Um, these also are things beyond laboratory testing. Right. Uh, we don't know that these things are real. Um, is there some encouragement in the Bhagavatam for that community of people seeking some <laughs> evidence that you know, I'm feeling schizophrenic. I live in this world of science and medicine, and I know that if I put gas in my car, it's going to take me where I want to go. And I <laughs> depend on these things happening. These are realities. These are things that have been tested, and it's tangible. I can, I can feel it. I can smell it. I can touch it. Yes. Then I have an intuition that this other thing is going on, yeah. that there's a greater wisdom to the universe, a greater purpose to my life, but I don't have any evidence for that. What would you offer by way of an encouragement to someone caught in that dilemma? How, how to make a bridge between those two. How to live with those two things in, in the uh, same mind. You yeah. know, how, do, how do I reconcile these two parts of my being? Well, one possibility is to... Uh, Make do with schizophrenia. <laughs> Interesting idea. What do you think? I think it's a great idea. <laughs> great. Idea. I've been I've been schizophrenic this long. I might as well continue. And so is the other guy sitting here. So. Uh, so that's one option. Well, let's let's take one of the narratives of the Bhagavatam and look at it a little bit. One of my favorites is in uh, the sixth book. It's the story of Indra. Indra is a personage uh, who is known all the way back from the Rig Veda, which is this very ancient text of hymns. And Indra is famous in the Rig Veda as the killer of Vritra. Now, Vritra is, could be described as a dragon. Uh, he is also, it seems to be, a kind of serpent. And what is Vritra doing in the Rig Veda is he is withholding the waters of the universe. 
Okay, sounds very mythical. And in the Rig Veda, Indra is celebrated as he who kills Vritra, thus making life possible because the waters are released. So Vritra in this understanding is the bad guy and Indra is the good guy. Then we come to the Bhagavata and the story kind of backs up and says, once upon a time, Indra was with his, uh, his courtiers in his court because he was uh, known as the king of, of the heavenly realm. And one day his guru walked in while he was preoccupied with his courtiers and he didn't notice his guru. And not noticing his guru, he failed to respect him. And failing to respect him, his guru turned around and walked back out of the room and left the palace and left. And Indra realized too late what had happened uh, and what he had done wrong. And he tries to catch up with his guru, but it's too late. And as a result, he has now come into a situation of great danger because the understanding in this culture is uh, that power, political power, any kind of power for a person in power is coming from, uh, from the teaching from the teacher of that person who is also a kind of priest now he has given up he has he has gone and he is without a priest and without a teacher without a guru well it's a long longer story it leads to his getting another guru but he doesn't like that guru in fact indra seems to have a kind of short temper uh, when um, eventually he kills that guru um, the second guru, Vishwarupa. And uh, this leads to the father of that guru becoming angry and creating a monster, and that monster is Vritra. But now it's more complicated than that. Vritra has himself, in a previous life, been a bhakta, a devotee, of Vishnu, who makes a little mistake. He's, um, he's, um, he makes Parvati upset. Parvati, the goddess, uh, becomes angry, curses him to become Vritra. Now, here's the point. When, when finally it comes to a, a confrontation, the showdown, which was in the Rig Veda, uh, Indra and Vritra fighting, and Indra wins, and Indra is the hero. In the Bhagavatam, it's Vritra who is the hero. And why is he the hero? Because his mood is one of devotion to God. His mood is one of devotion to Vishnu, and he knows 
that if I can be killed, I will go back to Vishnu. <laughs> and so he says to Indra, please just get it over with, kill me. <laughs> the sooner the better. <laughs> and Indra is, he's, he's, he becomes fearful, uh, he becomes worried, he becomes uh, disturbed, but eventually he does what has to be done, but sort of uh, with great hesitation. The idea here is there is a kind of reversal of roles, but in a sense what the Bhagavatam is saying is what's really going on in that ancient text with that uh, ancient, what we would call a myth, it's a story about bhakti. And what is bhakti? Bhakti is a sense, it's a sensibility which is cultivated not through rationalism, not through rationalism alone, although rationality is important, um, by itself it is not going to get us <laughs> what we require uh, in order to unfold our um, full humanity. What's going to be needed is what the tradition calls bhakti, which comes from the verbal rubaj, which means to share. It's the uh, ability of ourselves from the center of our being, if you like, uh, to share our being with, with others and, uh, and in, in the highest sense with the supreme sharer, the supreme uh, object of bhakti who is not an object, but a subject, uh, the original subject. So to, 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 to bridge this gap, what is it that we want to bridge? The, the Bhagavata would say, going back to the, uh, to the Yoga Sutras, there is something called chitta, and this chitta, consciousness, uh, is, is a whole network uh, consisting, sometimes it's analyzed as a combination of uh, the um, analytical tendency, especially buddhi, what's called buddhi, uh, but also uh, what is called manas, uh, which includes, uh, it, it's a kind of organizing principle of the senses and therefore the perceptions uh, from which then we get conceptualization. Uh, and also it is this, uh, what I mentioned before, the, the ahamkara, this sense of identity of ourselves. And sometimes it's mentioned also the antakarana. Antakarana, literally that which goes in. Uh, antaryami, that which goes within. Uh, referring, in general, referring to paramatma, the, the, the higher self. All of this together in a kind of bundle is that which is longing for a settlement, as you are saying, you know, between the rational self and, uh, and, and the, you said, intuition, that sense that there is something more uh, than what the rational self provides. That is being facilitated in the, what, what is, uh, my guru and your guru sometimes would, would call a scientific process uh, of bhakti. 
that you test this process and you can then realize that your preconceptions of who you are are now shifting and that you are now decentering yourself for the person who much more deserves to be in the center, <laughs> um, the, the, the Supreme Person. Does that make any wow, sense? Wow, it certainly does. I'm going to open this up to questions. Okay. Before I do, I just want to see if I've understood what you so eloquently described this now. It seems the bottom line is don't, don't judge things by their appearances or superficially. The surface understanding of these scriptural stories is just that. It's the beginning, but there are these deeper <laughs> levels of understanding. I love that virtue becomes the good guy, yeah. for example. What a wonderful thing that is. And it seems that they're in different places. So having someone to guide you through the text is critical as well, because just mm. reading it on your own, you, you may, may not, not make those it. connections. Yeah. You're not going to see those deeper dimensions to it. Right. Yeah, this is a wonderful um, unpacking of the Bhagavatam. Thank you. I'm going to open this up to you guys. You get to um, basically ask away whatever it is that's on your mind. This is, um, um, I think, kind of throwing you off the deep end of the pool, right? Um, and that's intentional because I think sometimes we, in our weekly gatherings, uh, and I assume responsibility here, uh, tend to stick with that which is immediately accessible. I try to find things that we share in common, the things that, that make up our lives. We, we have someone like uh, Krishna Chetraswami, uh, 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 whose such understanding is so more, much more profound. We can go past that. We can get into dimensions that we don't usually talk about. So um, take the opportunity, you know, uh, <laughs> If there's anything that's been holding you back or that has been puzzling you about there's Bhagavad Gita or anything that we've been discussing. There's only one thing you can do when you get thrown in the deep end, and that is swim. <laughs> or drown. <laughs> Drowning can be a good thing in bhakti. <laughs> well, if you don't have questions, I do, so I'm just going to wait another minute. Yes, do you? So is it... Um you describe one way of perceiving the Bhagavatam, but what if we just take it in blind faith? Like, why not? Why not these beings? If we just accept it as this, even though we may not understand it. Yes, that's also possible. What we're trying to discuss here, I think, is a recognition that uh, we're all, you know, schooled in a certain way, uh, which is... Uh, to privilege, uh, I don't want to say just rationality, but a certain understanding of rationality, because you can also argue that the Bhagavatam is perfectly rational on its own terms. Um, so because we're school schooled in a certain way, especially uh, we are uh, in a culture of, of skepticism, uh, and, of course, skepticism has a long history. It goes back to uh, the time of uh, the, uh, the Greek philosophers. Um, we're sort of mostly working upstream, but what you're suggesting is what if we just go with the flow of the text and kind of 
allow ourselves to enjoy, to to kind of relish it, let let the strangeness be whatever it is, and just appreciate it as uh, as something wonderful. Uh, uh, how to put it? Uh, a dimension that we're not accustomed to, but why not? We we read fantasy books and enjoy them. We read science fiction and enjoy it. Why not read this well, and get the benefit? Adjust our values for life on science fiction books and fantasy books. We don't? You sure? I don't know. Do we? Well, there may be lessons within... I mean, good good literature is also teaching, isn't it? Okay, all right, so you're saying set aside the rational hesitations and just look for the poetry, look for the moral value, the... What? Whatever we can get from it. Mm-hmm. Look for whatever comes to us. Uh, and I, I, I was uh, alluding to the idea in the later bhakti tradition, there's an elaborate system of aesthetics in which uh, one of the emotions that's celebrated is the sense of wonder. Uh, what's called adbuta, adbuta rasa. And I find in reading the Bhagavad, especially the fifth canto, what seems to be the invitation is allow yourself to experience wonder, uh, which is, of course, something that we as moderns have lost to a large extent uh, in many spheres of life uh, with the so-called disenchantment of modern life. Well, there's there's been a case made against that philosophy or that uh, theory of uh, who was the sociologist Max Müller who spoke of it, the, the disenchantment. Anyway, um, so wonder is is uh, is a valuable thing. And in, in a sense, if you read the beginning of that description of the, the cosmos according to Shuka, if you like, uh, Shuka is saying, well, now I'm going to describe what I've heard. He himself is not claiming even to understand what he's saying. He's saying, this is what I've heard, so I'm just going to repeat what I've heard. question yeah um, I think this is on similar lines as she said it in like six or seven words is this going to be loud enough for this uh, my, I'll re- repeat the yeah, question okay. I can also project my voice it's okay. quite loud when it, so um, <clears throat> well the 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 system the 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 system of thought that um, you know was described in part as being skeptical of that which seems so different, but it seems to me that the best skepticism is skepticism of that skeptical system. Um, 
<clears throat> because um, I think someone who's thought very, if one, if one's introspective and very thoughtful, then one can see that um, that that this 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 sort of normal system of thought and analysis is based on things that are backwards, despite that it's a system by way of, of thinking that others generally conform to. So, for example, that 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 I am, that I exist, right? Like, um, <clears throat> but then but then the body dies, and then the people that we know, who we think exist, they're gone, and then that we, and then another point, then we're people who are rational and thoughtful and skeptical of these things that they can't see, and yet they do, they engage in plan making for their life, like, you know, they put money in their, in their uh, 401k, but they don't plan for what happens uh, when they're 85 and beyond, what's going to happen. So, <clears throat> um, so things are, can be so twisted, so then if, if things don't really make sense, if they don't add up, and if we can't explain how the planets are all revolving in an orderly fashion and we don't know what's there, then at, at one point, I think, and this is, this, is, this is what brought me to spiritual life, is I said that to me, everything, the way that the people around me who I have <clears throat> uh, esteemed as very intelligent, but it seems to me that they don't necessarily know um, necessarily the fundamentals of life. So then for me, the best thing that I, I could see to do is to drop all my uh, preconceptions of how things are and how things, how I ought to do things and open my, expand my consciousness as you were saying from the 60s, and try to find, try to learn, be open-minded. Hmm. And then with that, with that, with that um, perspective, I think that allows one to consider things that otherwise one would be too skeptical to even, you know, even register as being possible. Um, thank you for that. If I can respond for just a second, I think Atma's pointed to the heart of... Uh, big issue, at least one for me. There's a community of people, and it's the community that I like to hang out with, who are open, as you're saying, to other ways of, who are skeptical about the skepticism, who, who, who are open to the mystery of things. Um, I find those people wonderful and exciting. I also find, however, and I have to be very candid about this, the larger, numerically larger community of people who populate my life are good people. They may not be believers. They may be still within that realm of skepticism when it comes to fabulous scriptural stories, and they generally tend to say, well, that's nice stories, and that's as far <laughs> as they really care to take it. Um, I don't find them wicked or bad or, or karmically uh, you know, challenged as a consequence of that. They, they're good people for the most part who want to pay their bills and take care of their families and 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 uh, uh, and help the world. Mm. Most of the people I know who don't happen to be 
spiritually motivated, still want to do some good. Yeah. They want to do something positive and, and real and tangible. Mm. And that's the word I think that uh, is uh, the tipping point, if you will. What is tangible to the good people I know mm. is the world they do perceive. Mm. And given the choice between dedicating time and effort to the fantasy world, however much substance there may be to that fantasy on some higher level of realization, they'll choose the world that they can access because that's the one where they perceive the problems. That's the one where people are being harmed. That's where, you know, rogue administrations are killing people and separating kids from their parents and all the rest of the, you know, the whole litany of ills that plague us today mm. are happening on this plane, the plane of the reality that I can touch and feel and understand rationally. Mm. This other world is wonderful. I don't see how that's going to help me here. That's what I run up against. I run up against this not rejection but lack of understanding the relevance. Yeah. Is there a relevance to that mystery that we can, someone like you or I, you know, you know can say, no, no, there's, there's relevance here. Well, yes. First, I would say, um, absolutely, it makes, it makes sense uh, to uh, take everything going on in this world as important and as uh, matters of concern, as you said, and so on. Uh, I think all that uh, this tradition is, is arguing is there, it's, it's bringing a question mark to all of that and saying, is this all there is? because it is within us as human beings to ask that question, is this all there is? And as soon as you ask that question, it, it, the, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> it, it raises so many more questions. Is it therefore really, hmm, we may invest, you're using the word tangible, and that's good, is, is it that it is the most rational thing to invest all of our attention and energy in the, ra in the tangible? Or is it not, is it meaning, is it ultimately meaningful to limit ourselves to that? Because as human beings, we are seekers of, of meaning. <coughs> and and if if we come to uh, a dead end where there is where 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 meaning falls away, uh, we lose any purpose for life. And so, if we're revolving within a limited circle of meaning, and the question comes, "Is this all there is?" We, we we get we're lost. We suddenly become disoriented. That's why I love these gatherings. That was like such a perfect response. I saw a hand up here. Who 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 raised their hand? I I mean yes. Everything you say, I 
appreciate and, um, I, and thank you so much. The thought that comes to mind is, did it take us so long in our human lives to reach this, this moment, this time, to, uh, to know that, as he said, the bhakti, to, to not just connect inside with something more, but it's to connect to everything, to, to not be anything, to just to be, to be more part of that supreme consciousness so that we're nothingness. But if we realize, if we're trying to, to harvest that, that knowledge, how come when we're raising our children or new, you know, new babies being born, why don't we raise them with that from the beginning? Why do they have to go through decades of life <laughs> to make that question? That's my question. Ah, that's a good and question. And then we change the world if, if we can raise people like that. That's a good question. I think that's a question for parents. <laughs> and I'm not a parent. Um, I'm, a, I'm a child. My parents raised me, I think, in many respects, very well in others. You know, we all f f kind of look back and wonder if something couldn't have been better, maybe. But um, it's an interesting uh, feature of the human species that it takes us so long uh, to be, you know, old enough to be independent of our parents, like no other species, isn't it? It takes us... And how much does it cost, they say, average? I remember 40 years ago they said it cost $250,000 to raise a child in America to age 18. Now it must be a lot That's more cheap. Now that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how much it costs to send them to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not, that was 40 years ago anyway, or 50 years ago. Um, indeed, that's a good question. And... This is a question that engages uh, many educators who are, so to say, on the bhakti path. They're very much... I was at a conference a few months ago in India on this very subject, uh, education of uh, spirit, spiritual, spiritual education in this bhakti, bhakti path. Uh, and I don't feel adequate to answer that, except to say in the most general sense. The understanding, and this is talked about also in the Bhagavatam, is um, indeed start very young. In fact, there's a, uh, a verse, I think it's the first w verse of Prahlad's teachings. Prahlad is a young boy himself uh, who kind of uh, sneaks he sneaks into the classroom when his teachers are out of the classroom in order to teach his friends about bhakti. <laughs> and he says, Komaramacharet pragyo dharman bhagavatam niha durlabam manusang janma tat api adruvam artadam. He says, uh, Komara, we are five years old and Pragya, wisdom, we, we are 
in we should become wise. Uh, Dharman Bhagavatan Iha. Here now, Iha, is the time uh, to pursue this higher understanding. Durlabang Manusang Janma. This human life uh, is Durlaba, which means very rare to attain. It's this, you know, kind of foundational idea of the tradition that we are going through many lives, not only human lives, but also other forms of life. And so to be born in a human body uh, is uh, repeatedly said to be a rare opportunity. Durlabham manusangjam tat api adruvam artadam. And it is artada, it gives us great value. And the special value uh, is uh, that we can pursue higher awareness, higher consciousness, for the purpose of eventually getting beyond this cycle of death, rebirth, death, and rebirth. All of this, of course, is beyond the tangible. It's, it's you know, they try to do research. Uh, there was the uh, professor Ian, what was his Stevenson. name? Stevenson. Stevenson, who was interviewing uh, children who seemed to be remembering past lives and that sort of thing. Uh, many attempts are made to uh, try to push the envelope, the boundaries of the limitations of birth and death to see what's beyond, and we can't see what's beyond for sure. The tradition is saying, you're never gonna, uh, you're never gonna get there by yourself. Therefore, you have to allow uh, something to break through. Uh, there has to be a knowledge that comes from a higher source. And that's not going to come through a religion of skepticism. <laughs> but yes, from the earliest years possible, that's the idea that's given. Now, how to do it in practice with small children, that's uh, not easy, especially in modern life. As, as a parent, I feel your pain. <laughs> um, and share the sense of guilt or responsibility for not having done a better job. But sometimes, I guess, the value of these kinds of gatherings is that it contextualizes the events of our life in a way that allows room for maybe forgiving ourselves also. That there's a much bigger picture. We, we feel the moment because it's, it's, that's what we're living is right now. Um, if we step back away, we see that it's part of a continuum that's growing. Um, uh, I, I get this question, I'm sure you do as well. You know, I've been chanting now for six months and I, I'm still not, you know, Krishna realized, you know, what's, what am I doing wrong? Well, it's, it's like looking at a graph. You know, if you're up close, that line has ups and downs. It's got peaks and valleys. And we feel it when there's a valley and we're dropping down to the bottom and then we climb up again and then we're down again. 
And if you back away, you see that it's actually describing an upward curve. But because every moment we live so intensely at that moment, we don't always realize that we're on that progressive incline. But it's there. That's a nice analogy. (laughs) I think the more that we are aware, the more we try to stay, even though we have dips and downs, we don't drop down as low. So that's the that's what Marv was talking about. That's that sama yoga chitta vritti naroda. That managing of those ups and downs, so that you're on that seeing that vision. And when you start to drop, you you meet, you say in your head, "No, no, I I have to can't go there. Can't go Gotta there." Go back. And you pop up, you learn it a little bit, and then you know that the next day the sun's going to come out because it's always there. Anyway. <laughs> I feel a song coming out. There's a song coming on. <laughs> we have time for one or two more questions. Yes. I was thinking about what you said, that you feel like the vast majority of the people you encounter are, are good and they could get benefit from this, but there are things they can't connect. And I feel like that too. Like, But then I start thinking even practicing in this philosophy, do I am I suffering from tunnel vision myself that I cannot convey the message? Because I understand it's those are very universal topics, very universal um, information there. So how not to be my question is like how not to suffer from tunnel vision once we are open to get this information so we can be able to share with other people. Ah, nice, yeah. Hegelian tunnel vision. Hegelian tunnel vision. But you were describing at the beginning? Yeah. Is that Hegelian? Was it Hegel? Yeah. That tunnel with the four sides? No, Houston Smith. Houston Smith, Smith. yeah. Much later than Houstonian. 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 (laughs) (laughs) How not to suffer? Well... As the old saying goes, there's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> keep your attention on that light and keep running. <laughs> I mean, it's part of your point of the graph moving up, I would say, also. have it, Appreciate the successes. Don't dwell on the dips. And uh, just keep, keep looking at the light out at the end and appreciate that the fact that you are feeling like this means you're making progress because if you weren't you wouldn't feel like this you'd think this is uh, this is normal i'm okay you're okay but a sense of urgency a sense of "Mm, there's got to be more than this Uh, a sense of i wish i could communicate this to others means how could that be there unless there was uh, an opening up in your own awareness, your own consciousness? You're seeing others who are opening up and you're appreciating them, how they're opening up and you're saying, yes, I want to be like that. So that's already, you're on the way. So appreciating others. Yeah. It's a nice way to avoid the tunnel there's that story of the two young yoga practitioners and 
one turns to the other and says, wouldn't it be funny if that light at the end of the tunnel turns out to be New Jersey? <laughs> Would you please th join me in thanking Krishna Chachamars? Do you mind if I make a little plug for my please. next book? Plug away. <laughs> I came prepared. We had this printed in Argentina, so it got a little bit folded up. This book is coming out in about six weeks. Uh, it's called Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. It's uh, being published by Palgrave Macmillan in their Animal Ethics book series. Uh, the editor of that series uh, is Andrew Lindsay, who is the... Um, he is the director of the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And he invited me to write this book, and I'm happy to say it's going to be available in open access format, which means yeah, that as soon as it's available, they, they're saying November 25th, uh, you'll be able to just click and download the book uh, free of charge, digital Amazing. format. Oh, so so that's available for pre-order now. Uh, I would suppose, yeah, it's you on can Amazon. You can also order hard hard copy. It's available on Amazon or probably other bookstores online. Good to know. And you're speaking tomorrow night, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to talk about. This. Okay, so tomorrow evening, Krishna Chetraswamy will be speaking at the Bhakti Center, Twenty Five First Avenue. 7 p.m., I believe, is the start time. Is that correct? On this subject of your new book. Hmm. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for, for our evening together. Please, once more, thank you. So um, help yourself. There's more dessert and dinner. If you didn't have enough, there's more there for you. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll send you out a notice soon of some of the upcoming programs in the new year, and we'll hope to see you there. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's on Amazon. It is available on Amazon.